you've done some incredible things in your life, but it all kind of has to start somewhere. We're thinking, why hasn't someone done this before? Are we missing something? Because this seems like an obvious solution to a big problem. We should absolutely be encouraging businesses to take on the world, but why can't they take on the world from Australia? We've essentially gone viral because of a virus. We saw daily sales double one day and then 12x the day after that. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of People Building Businesses by YBF Ventures. Today's guest is Winnetha Abani. She's a thought leader and champion of diversity, inclusion, and advancing women of color. She's the very first member of YBF's Tech Diversity and Inclusion Council, and was recently awarded the Order of Australia Medal for her work in diversity and inclusion. Can't wait for you to tune in. Thanks for listening. Winnetha, thank you so much for being on the People Building Businesses podcast today. Uh, I've known you for quite a while now, but this is the first time that we're actually having a proper chat about yourself and your work. So thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and you know me. Love to have a chat. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. So uh, a lot of people know you for your work in diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Uh, but before we get into that, I think it'd be great to understand Winnetha the person and, um, you know, maybe you could shed a bit of light about your background and, you know, maybe where you grew up even. So if you'd like to start there, that'd be a, a great one to, to hear about. Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure about you, but people often, you know, ask me, you know, where are you from? Because, you know, the accent's kind of mixed. Obviously, mm. you know, I've got brown skin, curly hair. And um, and I just tell people, well, you know, I was born in London, parents in Sri Lankan, raised in Australia. So I'm like, you can just figure it out and work out yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, where am I from? Um, so my my ancestral roots are um, Tamil Sri Lankan, um, but I was born in London um, and I moved to Australia when I was four and um, lived out west. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And how was your, your childhood growing up here in Australia? Did you uh, enjoy the Australian lifestyle and what was um, your experience growing up here? Yeah. So back then, particularly Western uh, Victoria, it wasn't mm. as multicultural as it is now. So I was the only you know, person of color, um, non-Anglo-Saxon, you know, uh, student in primary school, mm. even in kindergarten, high school. Um, so I got bullied quite a lot. Um, I got a bit aggressive. Okay. <laughs> I think some kids kind of cower and I, and I did cry, but then I learned um, to uh, fight back a little bit. So yeah, people used to call me like, you know, like poo, you know, stuff like that, or your skin's like poo. And I'd be like, well, your skin's like milk. <laughs> and I thought, oh, hang on, that's a bit of a compliment. <laughs> yeah. um, so I always felt like, you know, the odd one out. And, you know, it was obvious, you know, in um, in my early years, I was, you know, singled out amongst all the kids. And, you know, in terms of telling the time and, and the principal, um, the teacher would say, oh, you know, you should know how to tell the time. And I thought, well, isn't that why I'm at school? Yeah. Um, so kind of like singled, singled out. So was always, always felt different, even in my own, um, like my direct family felt like I was from the very beginning. I don't know um, why, but I just feel like completely different to everyone else. They are all quite similar and then there's me. <laughs> so yeah, but um, as a kid was very, um, was very ambitious, very driven. Uh, I was attracted to visual art um, mm. as a six, seven year old kid, which was a bit interesting. Very young, yeah. Um, got, you know, dove really straight into oil painting. Okay. 
um, and then started pestering and bullying my parents for like all these expensive art materials and um, decided that I was going to win the Archibald Prize. Um, wow. Which obviously I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I was always very driven, um, but also very creative. I think I had a lot of things inside of me that I wanted to express that I wanted to say. And uh, at that moment in time, the arts were my choice. And then that then morphed into into business and dance and um, and other creative outlets. And you described yourself as a lifelong learner. So yeah. that's kind of reflected from an early age even um, oh, all the yeah. way up to today, which yeah. is quite incredible. I mean, these days kids, you know, they learn differently, like on iPads and YouTube and stuff like that. But, you know, for, you know, I guess we're similar in age, I'm guessing. But like for us, it's a library. Mm. So every school holidays, every three, four days, I would take my grandfather's um, grocery trolley and borrow like seven to ten books and digest them all, all art-based. Yeah. And was just a big consumer of information. And and still today, I consume a lot. So my um, my people of color folder alone on Evernote has over 500 pieces of content. Mm. And that's not including all the content that I've consumed that I haven't decided to click. Wow. Um, you know, books, articles, events, yeah, stuff like that. It's a huge library. Yeah, it is. I love libraries. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, you, you've had this experience growing up and you've experienced what it is to be a person of color mm. in Australia. Um, did you know that it was going to eventually be your calling to help people shift the perception and shift their focus towards a better and more diverse world? No. Um, I, I felt like I always wanted to do something great. Mm. And I think I felt the call to leadership at a very young age to, you know, like I always saw myself as, as you know, the odd one out, the completely different person in my own immediate family, you know, walking down the street, going to school and stuff like that. So I think I recognized at a very young age, there was something in me that stuck out and that was planted there for a reason. And, um, in, and more in terms of, I think, leadership, but I've always had this thing in me that's always just felt other people's like pain and suffering and um, has has been, I guess, a little bit of a fighter myself. So in terms of fighting for my own needs and wants and and those who are unable to fight for them themselves. Uh, so about six years ago, probably longer than that, I, um, you know, I had a corporate career and I decided to call quits on that. Mm. And then when I created space, and that's when, oops, sorry, that's when that calling actually came in because I actually uh, created for the first time. I created space for that. Mm. And it, you know, um, it might sound a bit woohoo for people, but it was a prof really profound spiritual experience. And um, and I just followed the, fun, the breadcrumbs. And then it became very clearly evident that, you know, this is the work that I was going to do. And, you know, I always... You know, I have a very strong entrepreneurial um, gene in me and I love business. Like a lot of um, girls my age at in high school when they were 13, 14 were in love with, you know, like the Hanson brothers, remember <laughs> them, the do-up boys. And uh, I was in love with business. Wow. I was in, I just loved every, like profit and loss statements, you know, different company structures. You know, I just That's amazing. loved everything about business. And that was like my first love besides art. And um, yeah, so I, I felt like there was, you know, I definitely wanted to create like some kind of a business, but I didn't think that the type of business that I would start was kind of like Harry Potter where you, you take the wand and you kind of 
you know, pull things out of your mind. <laughs> so yeah, and that's kind of what I what I do now. Like it's a process of extracting, you know, what's in here and um, and then delivering that to people in a way that's valuable to them. Yeah, amazing. I mean, you've had also a very successful corporate career prior to making that move uh, into entrepreneurialism and starting your own endeavors as well. I mean. One of the stories that we've heard is that you know you've turned around a not-for-profit company um, that was on the brink of collapse, yeah. um, and you've you know turned it into a profitable, sustainable company. Yeah. Met your KPIs in your two-year KPIs in six months, yes, as well, which is yeah. incredible. I mean, could you talk to us about that experience? Um, you know, yeah. turning around a company so quickly like that. I think I was in a period of panic because okay. normally um, with senior positions they. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you know, sign a disclosure agreement and then you'd look at the financials. So you, it's really clear and evident what you're walking into. For whatever reason that didn't happen, I did not think about it myself. I think <laughs> I was just really excited. Like, yeah. oh my goodness, I get to work for like my dream company. Yeah. And um, when I looked at the financials, I thought, holy crap. And then I saw myself in the middle of it. And I thought, I'm going down too. Wow. <laughs> so this company has about a shelf life of about six months. If I do not turn this ship around, um, I'm going down with it too. And that's also going to impact, and it sounds selfish, but I'm like, that's also going to impact my career as well. So um, that said, the company had you know a 40 year history, mm. um, one that I also believed in. And so um, as part of my contract, because I came in as a general manager, as part of my contract, I had a range of KPIs that were um, for the two year period. And I think one of the really good things about me is that Stress makes me a high-performing individual. I just go into this. You thrive in that environment. Yeah, yeah, I just go into that environment. So I just went into overdrive. I went into overdrive and I guess all my business training uh, prepared me also for that moment, which was, um, which is why they always say, you know, success is opportunity. Mm. Um, meets, you know, the, all the hard work and training that you've done. Yeah. And, um, but I think one of my key strengths was around finances. And, um, and when I m moved into the CEO role, then, um, you know, that became 80% of my focus was, you know, this is what the company has gone through. What can we do um, and put in place to ensure that it has enough buffers or enough um, lead time in case a, a potential challenge was to, to come into play. And yeah, and that's the legacy that I left in, in that company and they're still pumping and yep. going along and... And was that the last yeah. um, executive role you held before you started your own companies? Yes, yeah. I, I did get asked to interview for a number of CEO in, uh, roles, mm. both in the startup sector and in the um, social community sector as well. And a couple of director roles too, but um, I remember there was one director role with a very, very large non-for-profit and there was the CEO who I'd be reporting to and some guy who I don't know, okay. um, he was like a change consultant or something like that. Huh. And it was after that interview, I thought, no, nah, I'm not doing this anymore because he just ripped into my, res into my resume. Wow. Okay. And um, like, I understand, you know, it was director of operations and a large part of what you do is finance, but I had a really great track record. I had really a really strong resume and and the CEO was silent and she was a woman of color. Mm. And I that whole scenario did not feel right for me. And um, and as I was being interviewed for all these roles, it just it just got really clear to me that, you know, I don't want to be doing this anymore. You know, going in and fixing companies. Some people love it. 
um, I have the skill to do it and that's one of my strengths. But mm. just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you, that's the thing that you need to do. So I took a really long sabbatical, you know, mm. for about five months yep. and just explored and did every, you know, little bits of pieces of consulting work, you know, for about three and a half years. And, um, and then it came really evident that, you know, what I was supposed to do is diversity inclusion. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And when you made that decision, uh, what was your first step towards, you know, carving that new path for yourself? Um, I think the first step is always around having a support network. Mm. So I say the, the three things that people need, if you were to picture a triangle, you know, the three things people need to help create traction and to get them into motion is support, accountability, but also structure. So I think, you know, being part of communities like, you know, YBF, um, getting involved in different programs or, you know, accelerators and incubators and things like that, that gives you the support, the structure and the accountability that you need to get to get moving. Yep. So for me, I looked for other, um, you know, because uh, what I'm doing is, is uh, you know, different to, to running a startup. So I had to look for specifically, you know, thought leader based communities where people were, um, you know, experts in specific fields. So yeah, joined a few communities, you know, you know, put my little brown butt at, at YBF and um, she mentors as well, which is yep. another amazing, amazing community. And yeah, it's got myself. And I think staying plugged in is key. Yep. So yeah. Amazing. And I mean, since then you founded a bunch of different companies. Um, yeah. You know, you founded Colorful, which is Australia's first leadership and entrepreneurship conference mm. uh, by women of color, for women of color, which is amazing. You founded another company called uh, Amini of... Z Zaria, am I pronouncing yep. that right? Yep. Yep. And could you talk to us more about some of the companies you founded and what you're doing um, to advance that diversity and inclusion agenda? Mm. So Colorful, um, I guess, was something that I always wanted to do as an extension of Amina Zaria. Yep. Um, and again, it was very much a spiritual sort of experience where I was sitting in a um, invite-only meeting where leaders were coming together to talk about diversity. And I thought it was just diversity in general. And mm. then it was very clear that it was about cultural diversity and women, mm. that intersection. And had a really profound moment where I realized, okay, it's time. It's time for Colorful and it needs to have its own focus and be its own brand. So had the first, had the soft launch here and in the ballroom at YBF. And, um, you know, it was really generously supported by, you know, the whole team here to really get that going. And, and Courtney, you know, leaned into her event, you know, experience and for advice and on different bits and pieces. And, um, you know, I kind of left it to the last moment too. Hmm. So I remember having that conversation with Courtney and booking the room because I knew that if I commit to her and book the room, I won't, you know, I wouldn't want to let her down. Sure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then probably three weeks before the night, then only I started advertising and within, you know, um, sort of got the tickets up and stuff. And then I think two weeks before the actual night, then I started actually, you know, promoting it and stuff like that, which sounds um, not very organized at all. Um, but it was actually because of fear. I was really scared that there'd be only be 30 people in the room, probably less, maybe five would turn up, all mm. of, you know, friends and family that I knew. And... Um, and then I just thought, better get out of my own way and better do it. And I just put a post here, put a post there. And, you know, nothing strategic about it. Nothing, you know, amazing about, you know, that, that sort of strategy, content strategy. But it just had its own legs and garnered its own wind. And um, a lot of my LinkedIn posts, 
you know, got thousands of, of views very quickly. Um, and, you know, a hundred people book tickets. That's amazing. And, yeah. I recall it being an extremely packed room. Yeah, it might have been 150. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard you were oversubscribed <laughs> and you had a, a wait list as well for people. Yeah. So I was just amazing. like, I kept telling people like, they will only allow me X amount of people. So yep. if you're not going to come, please tell you me. Don't come. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And then Amina Azari was, um, is a digital platform mm. uh, for women of color. So um, what happened is with Amina Azari, a lot of women from, because I built a community around it, um, started calling me Amina. And I was like, oh, okay. oh my name's Amina. <laughs> my name's Winitha. Yep. <laughs> um, and then I realized that the, the, the lines between my practice and Amina Zaria were getting blurred. So what I've done with Amina Zaria now, because I've my journey, um, having been in entrepreneurship since I was like 14, 15, is I'm not now just excited by people who decide to start a company. I'm also really interested about people who decide to close a company okay. and, and a reason for that. And I've been following people's journeys. So Amina Zaria, I don't know if that will take a different shape or form in the future. I have an inkling of what that might look like. Um, but last year I decided to kind of merge that under my own brand and even colorful as well. So everything's yeah. now in-house. And, and, there, and there's another reason for that, which is also, you know, positioning now of me and, um, you know, being a spokesperson for women and people of color. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, uh, what does Amina Azaria, what, what's the story behind that name? Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting name. Yeah. So um, when I was thinking of a name for the company, I wanted there to be a story behind it. Yep. So um, I think a really great brand is one that has a story and a narrative that you can share in multiple ways and that engages people. And so I was searching for like just really profound, you know, women. And um, Madam CJ Walker came up, but her name was taken. And then I found a story of a person called Amina Zaria. And the thing that I liked about that story was this is a, a woman, uh, an African Muslim woman who was an exceptional leader. You know, back then they had various, you know, tactics that we probably wouldn't use today. Hmm. Um, but she was just a woman who stood in her own, you know, power and truth unapologetically and, you know, refused to get married, refused to have children, was, you know, um, if she got married, it would have meant that the throne would have, you know, gone to her partner, her mm. husband. And she said, no, I'm not doing that. And she was the most skilled at using a dagger than any of the men in her tribe. And, right. and I love this idea of, you know, an African black Muslim woman who was very, very skilled at using a dagger, but also during her time was very entrepreneurial. And during that period was when her city really prospered financially. So she, it demonstrated great leadership skills and someone that really took care of their people. And um, and I that was a story that really resonated with me. You know, I've always talked about women, um, you know, being warriors uh, and being warrior leaders. And I when I when I heard her story, I thought, yep, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I called it Amina of Zaria. So Amina is her name, and Zaria is the place that she's from ah, and the walls gotcha. around, yep. which is in, located in Nigeria, yep. the walls um, still exist. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, till today. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that's an incredible story. So yeah. I'm sure you've been asked plenty of times about the name. So yeah. sure this is not the first time you're telling the story. <laughs> no. And, and I really like the idea yeah. that, you know, she came from Nigeria because when I was 
born in London in the area mm. that we lived there were a lot of Nigerians and okay. um, my parents rented a room in a house and down below was was a Nigerian family and mm. they they really looked after you know my parents being quite young yep. and gave them food and stuff like that and I've always had this connection and, and um, always felt gravitated towards um, you know people from African cultures and backgrounds and um, and yeah and people from from Nigeria as well that's amazing so jumping into your current work uh, today you know you're a speaker you're a coach you're a mentor um, you've advised anywhere from board members of billion dollar companies to you know assistant commissioners and vice chancellors uh, especially around div diversity and inclusion so could you just describe some of the work that you actually do to support these companies in achieving those goals of diversity and inclusion yeah so I guess it depends first of all mm. what they have budget for two what they're feeling brave around and three you know where it you know how seriously do they take this work mm. and I think the third point really connects with the second around courage so um, some organizations just want me to come in and review their uh, their inclusion strategy and give them so act in the capacity of an advisor uh, some boards will want me to come in and um, slot into a board meeting and present on you know, the latest findings and research of diversity inclusion, you know, from a risk perspective, what are some of the things that they need to be talking about? And some organizations, um, you know, I come in and work as a what I call a diversity inclusion expert in residence. So mm. I really come in and I plug myself into their organization. I still have one foot out. So I do have that benefit of, you know, because I'm working with multiple clients, bringing that those shared experiences into, into an organization and that best practice. And... Um, and then what I'll end up doing is I'll, I'll run a, a 360 review. So I'll, I'll review the entire business through the lens of diversity inclusion. I'll present a set of, um, I'll present the findings, but also a set of recommendations. And then from there, I'll usually um, design and deliver their, their inclusion education programs, um, but also overlook their, um, their strategies, their initiatives and everything that happens um, throughout the company. So I wouldn't say I actually do the work. So I yeah. wouldn't write the strategy, but I provide the training, the facilitation, the advice, the coaching, the mentoring, um, because it, I always tell clients that it's not about me coming in and staying in for the next 20 years. Mm. I'm coming there to what we call in you know, business jargon world, you know, your capability and your capacity as an organization so that hopefully in the next five years, you actually don't need me. But I'm I'm gonna stick around for a while because it's about building that yep. foundation. Yeah. So yeah, and then I do a lot of work around um, inclusive leadership. So I run uh, training programs for exec teams around how to be an inclusive leader. What does it mean for an organization to be truly diverse and inclusive? I feel like that is shifting every day. Hmm. So you know, a couple of years ago, uh, even as as early as you know last year. I was one of very few people using, you know, language around women of color, people of color, and in Australia, you know, to say, you know, uh, that that person's, you know, white or that person is a person of color was like, woof, it was like mm. huge thing. Um, so I feel like what encapsulates diverse, uh, you know, um, diversity is is constantly shifting and, and changing, and I think it depends on where you live. So, for example, you might live in a very you know, um, in a very, in a suburb where there are many people that, you know, integrate with each other. So multiple identities that are fully integrated. And then you might 
moved to another suburb or an area where everyone looks dressed sounds you know their identities are pretty much pretty much the same so i think it depends on you know geographic location i mm. think it depends on even the country yep. and also the sector as well so okay yeah so for example with the hr sector mm. it is very heavily female yep you know um led there are a lot of um majority of hr teams are majority female so if we're talking about gender balance in that sector we're looking at at it from the context of people that identify as non-binary gender non-conforming uh transgender you know male and other identities in that space mm -hmm. as opposed to there needs to be more women in leadership I see. in yep. that sector yeah so when you go into a, a company and you provide them the advice and yep. the tools um how do you then measure success in diversity if you know if there are different um measures of success in diversity and inclusion yeah i think that's the thing that we have to decide as a group from the very beginning hmm. because it's that measure of success that then drives you know everything yep. all the initiatives or the programming or the strategy and stuff like that and i think when we think about um what is measure of success underneath that is you know where is your what at le what level are you feeling bold brave and courageous so a lot of organizations um i find here in australia are very risk averse when it comes to diversity and inclusion as opposed to in the states okay not as willing to set aside budgets and substantial budgets to do this work and also my in my experience when it comes to execs and um and boards and things like that is they are very um concerned about um starting or having political conversations in the workplace and they view though that um as something that might potentially uh create a sense of divisiveness in the culture. Mm. So for me, um when I come into organizations a conversation isn't around us versus them sort of mentality or or what we call othering. Um it is about coming together as a community and it's about unity. So in community the word unity is in that in that word. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's about us as individuals mm. coming together but being able to work with each other mm. even though we may have different beliefs uh about about life and be completely different interview in, in, in different individuals and to me that's in, that's inclusion is us coming to work together and saying hey you have completely different views and philosophies of of life or maybe even work but we can create a space where we can come together and and do really meaningful work but also creating a culture so for me one of the success criteria is creating a culture where you know people feel safe to come to work fully as they are unapologetically and unashamedly the mistake that a lot of organizations are making is they are communicating and telling people that this is what we want you to do and using it as a form to attract people with various different identities into their organizations to create a diverse, you know, workforce. Mm. When that is actually not the most responsible thing to do because you haven't created a culture that is ready to receive those individuals. And then what happens is when those individuals come into those cultures, they then put on their shame armor mm. and put in their, you know, you know, their strong suits or whatever and basically um have to you know do this every time they're coming to work because they as soon as they've walked in they're like this is clearly not a space that is ready or able 
uh, to accept me for for everything that I am and, and who I am. Mm. So, you know, I've heard multiple stories of, you know, even outside of the workplace when people go for drinks. Right. And someone getting really, really drunk and then making really homophobic remarks mm. about an individual. Um, and then that person's then raised that to HR and then HR, you know, handle it in a way that's probably not the best way. And then that individual then over time, because they've been slapped on the, sh on the wrist um, and told, OK, well, you need to we're going to put you into another team. Um, then feels like I need to cover up who I am as an act of to, to protect myself. If the company isn't going to protect me, yeah. then I now need to protect myself. So. So for me, it's about um, a real important success criteria, which is really difficult to measure. Um, and I think that's only, you know, I always say with diversity inclusion when I'm running diagnostics is that surveys give you 20% of the data that you need. Hmm. Focus groups and conversations with people is going to give you 80% of the data because what we're dealing with is lived experience. And people are going to tick everything on a box and say, yep, I can do all those things. I'm great at creating a psychologically safe environment yep. because they might be fearful, even if the survey is anonymous, which it always is with me, um, that someone get access to the information data and then there might be repercussions as a result of that. But as we know with you know uh, research and data and surveys, people generally are going to rate themselves extremely well. Mm. But if I have a focus group and say to me, say to you, well, Jason, how do you create a psychologically safe environment for people from the pride community. Can you unpack that? Can you, you know, tell me how you do that? Then that's when you are able to self-reflect and think, okay, well, maybe I'm not as strong as I think I am, mm. you know? Um, and so for me with organizations, it's when they create a real sense of community um, in the organization where if someone is suffering in or outside of work, that that, that that group of individuals really, you know, come around that individual and, uh, you know, support them and cheer them on and, you know, give them lots of compassion and empathy and love, regardless of whether they agree or disagree with what's evolved. Um, and there's a sense of like unity. That to me is a number one success criteria. Yep. And there's no other criteria apart from that in yep. terms of creating a culture that is truly inclusive. And I think what naturally happens is that when you create a reputation in a brand, because as we know in business, word of mouth is the best form of marketing. Um, is people within that organization then start to tell others, mm. this organization accepts me fully as I am and I can show up completely as I am yeah. um, within the round realms of, you know, like showing up who you are is not an excuse for obviously, you know, bad behavior. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's then what attracts people from multiple identities to work for you because unfortunately there isn't a lot of that in the workplace. And yeah. I think even with startup, organizations you know i was talking to an investment company um last week and mm. i and the question that i was asking them was, was yep you're giving them this support in terms of scaling their company but what support are you giving them in terms of scaling their culture and scaling their culture from the beginning so that there is a sense of diversity and inclusion because what happens is they grow to a team of 100 200 it's a toxic culture it's a very bro culture um and then they realize oh i need to do diversity and inclusion pull me in and at that time, the work is 10 times more harder than what it could have been if we have looked at from the very beginning as a team of one, as mm. a team of five, as a team of 10, and started nurturing that from the very beginning and building on that. Um, because in that, what happens is that those values and ideals 
then start to spread and integrate themselves into everything you do as a company. Yep. And it starts to manifest into, you know, product design and things like that. Yeah, that's amazing advice. I mean, that that's a great segue actually to my next question, um, which is touching on that scaling company aspect, because mm. a lot of our listeners here would be startup founders as well. You know, what do you think that different approaches are needed to create that culture when you're a one person company? to you know a 20 person company to 50 to 100 because each company is e each um, stage is effectively a different life cycle in a company mm. um, and you know the way you approach culture would be different as you scale and grow so mm. as you've coached companies through these different stages what are some of the practical measures that you've seen work as a company starts growing and scaling yeah i think when you're a smaller company um you know something as simple as bringing people from different identities um, mm. to come in and to speak on, you know, their lived experience um, is something that's, you know, is easy, is easy to do. I think when do you start to grow um, and there's multiple pressures on that company and, um, and you're growing very quickly and very rapidly, then people don't always have time, right. To do a lunch and learn mm. or to stay back after work for, you know, for some tea or drinks or whatever, and um, and to hear that person, you know, speak and to engage with them. So I, with early stage companies um, and companies um, that perhaps may be at seed round, you know, we can go about diversity inclusion in a very organic way. Mm. Uh, we can go about it in a very, um, obviously a very resourceful way, you know, budgets are usually quite tight. Um, as we start to grow and scale that company and get towards a mature end, budgets do need to be dedicated. So at that scale of the um, spec of the sort of life cycle, I do tell companies that they do need to set aside roughly about 100, 150 grand mm. um, per year to spend on this work, um, to do it meaningfully and to ensure that there's enough budget and resources in order to scale that work as the company grows, that, that investment needs to be there from the very beginning. Because um, what happens is companies grow, they grow to just, a ginormous size potentially mm -hmm. and um something gets out into the media and then it's uh you know we've seen multiple companies that have gone through you know things where mm -hmm. things have really impacted their brand their reputation and customers are no longer wanting to engage with yep. businesses and products and services absolutely that aren't inclusive that don't have value mm -hmm. so as much as we're progressing in um, in life as as a human race, and we're evolving and progressing. What I'm am finding um, is we there is a sort of a backtrack. So we are coming back to, you know, a sense of identity. We're coming back through to you know health and well being in terms of connecting with, you know, plants and yeah. nature and minimalism and living simply and, you know, making sure time is spent in a way that's really valuable and meaningful. And so um, the, my advice to, to companies that are probably on the mature end is the number one thing is you do have to set aside budget. If you don't set aside budget, that doesn't tell me that you're serious. Yeah. And at the, um, at, the, at the early stages, it's really about time and you utilizing the resources that you have, that you have access to, but again, doing that in a, in a meaningful way. So I guess with the early stage company, um, you know, the founder, they are usually able to um, to do this work or tap into, um, you know, people like myself uh, to come in and, you know, to speak or to present. 
Uh, and then with the mature end, then that's when I come in as a diversity and inclusion expert in residence mm. and work with a company for a minimum, you know, a year to potentially, you know, five years over time. And there's been a plenty of research to show that diverse and inclusive teams are actually more high performing than non-diverse, non-inclusive teams. So could you maybe talk a bit about those statistics and how teams have achieved more with yeah. a diverse and inclusive culture? Yeah. So I think the piece that's missing there is so that. So I think part of the research that came out of, I think, Google or something like that mm. was um, the number one driver for high performing teams uh, is psychological safety. Right. So when you feel like your voice and your values um, and your presence is, is valued and is heard and is seen and, and people act on that and you feel that it is safe to do so, then that is what drives you as a high performing individual. And that then drives a team to be high performing. And psychological safety is linked to diversity and inclusion. So people say, oh, you know, teams mm. need to be, um, they need to be, you know, diverse um, in order to be high performing. A team can be diverse, but they can also be really, really, you know, underperforming and highly dysfunctional because you've got a mixture of people with completely different identities, completely right, different okay. views and beliefs. Different values. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of evidence around that. And I, it's not about, for me, it's not about diversity. Like, I think it's more about cognitive diversity. So people's ability to right. process, you know, information, you know, differently and, um, and bring that together in a group, you know, your ability to process information is different to mine. And when we come together, we're able to do some incredible work together because our strengths and weaknesses are in different spaces. Um, and you know, when you process a problem and I process a problem from a different angle, we get, we get full spectrum, you know, on that problem. Um, but I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion and teams being high performing, we're not understanding the, the underlying reason of why that is. And the underlying reason of why that is, is that when people feel like they can be who they are and it's, it's a safe environment to do so, then yeah, I'm going to tell you all the brilliant ideas that yeah. I have at two o'clock in the morning. Um, or what I think the solution is to solve, you know, X problem, because I know that, hey, Jason, you know, you value me, you value my opinion, you value my presence. And even if this idea is weird and wacky or sounds completely, you know, um, off the Richter scale, that you are going to value that and you're going to take that seriously. So I'm mm. not going to withhold my genius and my talent yep. and my um, intellect from the business or the team because I feel like it's I'm safe to to put the best parts of me forward. So even when we talk about being unapologetically who you are and creating a safe environment for people to do that, it's not about all of you because we all have a dark side and shadow self. <laughs> but it's the best parts of you, you know, the best parts of you, and cultivating that, you know, nurturing that, enriching that. And so, um, you know, I because there there is a little bit of research. I think some researchers have got interested in this topic and have. Um, there is some research from Harvard that says actually it's not just people who have multiple di uh, you know, identities. It is people who are cognitively diverse from each other. Mm. That when we put those individuals together in a team, and that's what creates a high-performing team. But I think even with that, the, still the underlying uh, driver is I'm not going to process and communicate you how I processed or what I processed um, if I don't feel like Every time I put an idea forward, you're just going to shut me down. Yeah. You're just going to tell me that's a stupid idea, Winitha. Yeah. You need to go back to your desk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, third face. 
Oh no. Yeah. yeah. And, and that goes back to the again what you mentioned, which is the culture aspect. It has the culture has to be inclusive. The culture has to be welcoming yeah. and safe. And that's the, the basis for creating a, a truly diverse and inclusive team. Which yeah. is it sounds like it's a lot of your work that you're trying to help companies understand and go through that process yeah. as well. You know, another way to term it is misfits, you know, people mm. that just always felt like they were a misfit. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, but even with that, you know, if you mm. do put a bunch of like misfits into a room to solve a specific problem, there might be a really chaotic way of them doing that because they have, they're cognitively really diverse in the way that they process information. They have different values and beliefs that drive how they process that information. Um, and they view and see the world differently because of their different lived experiences. Mm. So again, it's like, well, what are, what are the founding principles to create that sense of community and that unity so mm. that we stay focused on the problem that we're solving, but do so in a really safe space. Mm. What happens when you come across a company that doesn't have, um, you know, that cultural readiness to be diverse and inclusive? Um, and, you know, maybe you, you, you've gotten a mandate from one of the leaders to go, you know, we need to change this. It has to be diverse. It has to be inclusive. Um, what do you do to fix that? Because if a company al already has a starting point, which is completely horrible, mm. <laughs> how radical does that change need to be? Or, you know, is it a gradual change that you need to implement over time? Is it a radical one? Like, how do you fix that culture? I think it depends on the culture, right? Mm. Again, oh, oh, sorry. It's okay. A lot yeah. of hand gestures. <laughs> Who I am, I can't yeah. <laughs> um, So I think with, you know, if it's a toxic culture, then yes, yeah. absolutely. You need some radical change. Um, I had a psychologist has said to me that it's actually, it should be mandatory that every company, you know, fires everyone after two years and does a big rec recruit because mm -hmm. people need that change. And if people stay in a job too long, then that's when cultures start to become toxic because mm -hmm. people get really settled. Um, and they're also not adaptable, right? Because mm. they're just staying in their comfort zone. And, you know, you might be really passionate about a company, but one of the reasons why people stay is they've gotten really cozy and warm and, you know, made, the, made their little nest and they want to stay there for the next, you know, till they, you know, retire. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, but I think my mantra with organizations is gentle, gentle, because, you know, mm. as I'm speaking with, with leaders and, and um, people that might be advocates or might be the person that's pulling me in, because um, I do a lot of work around um, leadership programs in for you know people of color or you know if if the organization isn't comfortable with that they'll mm. they'll rebrand it as culturally diverse um, and you know even with those programs with those individuals that, that are going through that training program the mantra is the same it's gentle gentle because I think too many times we kind of like we need to do better um, you know but when I tell people okay we great statement that you've made we need to do better how do you how do we do better yep. that's when people go silent that's when they go blank and they're like okay well I actually don't know what that means so so I think what needs to happen with organizations that don't have a culture of readiness is we need to go about it in a, in a gentle way that might seem really frustrating for people that um, are the perceived minority in that organization um, but if we go about it at at a too fast pace, then that's what creates um, a culture that, you know, becomes toxic and, and chaotic and can actually, you know, start to backfire. Mm. Because we're dealing with people's, you know, it's like sex, religion, money, you know, diversity, inclusion, just one of those, you know, areas where people will get really, really, really yeah. touchy about. So what I tell people is that as we start to do this work, 
you know, we announce it or when it has come in as a, as our Dunai expert in residence, she's doing this work. And I start running, you know, lunch and learns and connecting with people, engaging with people and people like, wow, this company is actually serious about this. Then the people who don't support that are naturally going to leave. Mm. And what will happen is we'll start to attract people that are that where their values are in line with that. And so, um, yeah, so I just tell organizations, just go about it in a gentle way because we're, we're dealing with people's lived experiences. We don't want to re-traumatize them. We don't want to traumatize them. And we also want to be respectful to their journey in this because what we're inherently asking them to do, which is what innovation is about too, right? But people always forget that. Mm. Not just creating new fancy fandangles and things like that. We're asking people to inherently change their beliefs and their behaviors around the world and how the world operates and looks it's true and how they go about a task so for example many many years ago you would have scrubbed your clothes on a metal thing <laughs> yeah. and that would have in your mind been the correct way yep. to wash clothes yep. but if you had asked that person to put your clothes you know in this contraption yep. with a whole bunch of other dirty clothes and that this thing was going to clean that you're just like that's weird that's right. <laughs> and what you're doing is you're asking those individuals to change their behaviors and their beliefs. That's true. Yeah. yeah. That's that's amazing insight. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that Australia is, you know, slower to adopt um, or to welcome cultural and, you know, cultural inclusiveness and diversity. And I think that's uh, very well reflected in last week's news where, you know, the Australian club had mm. rejected uh, the vote to allow women to enter into the Australian club, which personally for me is quite baffling. Mm. Um, you know, do you have any commentary around why Australia is at that stage? Well, it could be geographically, you know, mm. we're in the bottom half of the hemisphere. We aren't as geographically close to, mm. you know, other, you know, large countries. I don't know if we're, you know, too much in, in isolation because with other countries, you know, I've lived overseas as well in the States and the UK and, and Canada and, um, you know, people travel a lot. They travel in a northern hemisphere. They're like constantly traveling and they live in, you know, different countries. And I think that opens up people's, you know, views mm. and perceptions. And I think it also comes down to culture. You know, in Australia, we don't really have a culture where, you know, if you are different, you know, that is um, applauded and that is uh, viewed as um, something that is of value. You know, they want, you know, we have t what we call, you know, tall poppy syndrome. Um, people want you to conform mm. and, um, and and that could also be because, you know, we still report to, you know, Her Majesty to the Queen. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of things that come from the top and influence, you know, how we operate. And I think a lot of it has to do with culture. So, mm. you know, when I was, you know, in my really early 20s, our culture was not as culturally diverse as other countries. No, I didn't really see people, a lot of people from African backgrounds um, compared to when I went to the States mm -hmm. or when I went to the UK or other countries. Um, so, yeah, um, I think other countries, because, you know, for example, in the in the US, they've had, you know, the civil rights movement and things like that. Even in the UK, there's a huge history of slavery um, in Australia as well. Uh, but we haven't. Um, acknowledged our wounds, I think, to the extent that other countries have and therefore um, decided to be really proactive, mm. proactive about it. What does the country need to do to change that? Is there, do you think there will be a catalyst for that change to happen? Or, um, you know, what can the broader society, what does the broader society need? What does the broader society need to do? 
to get there? Um, I think it's about acknowledging that we mm. don't have all the answers. Mm. You know, where the one of the things that I always say in my training is like we're imperfect people living in an imperfect world. We're gonna f it up every day. We f it up because the one thing that I hear all the time is the number one thing, and I put this in the in the YBF newsletter, right? Mm. Because I I hear this all the time. Um, the number one thing doesn't matter if you CEO, the chair of like an ASX listed company, or someone who's just doing reception, you know, in an organization. It doesn't matter who you are mm. and where you're located. Everyone is scared about diversity inclusion. Mm. They're scared about doing the wrong thing. The number one thing I get asked for all the time is, can you give us a list of all the right and wrong things to say and do mm. and behave? I'm like, no, I can't do that. Because number one, the conversation is changing faster than I change my underpants, you know. And <laughs> yep. number two, I can't predict how society will evolve and, you know, anthropology. Mm. We're constantly evolving and changing. And it's not about me saying this is how the world needs to, yep. you know, identify and speak. Um, I'm just a vessel that holds space for this conversation. And whatever culture and community says that this is how they'd like to progress the conversation, then that's what I take into corporates, yeah. you know? And um, there, a lot of people are just, you know, fearful. So the inter the other interesting thing is, because I've done a lot of corporate innovation work, right? So people are fine putting budgets down and doing corporate innovation work. Mm. They are fine to get uncomfortable for the sake of profits mm. and progress and growth. Um, and they are happy to be uncomfortable in that process. But when it comes to diversity and inclusion, they're not comfortable. They let their fear get in the way and they refuse to be courageous and bold. They communicate that as risk. This is our risk appetite. This is, you know, what we have um, provision for in our risk, you know, management strategy or whatever, or what, you know, you know, it might impact our, you know, our brand's reputation and things like that. But what's really driving it is fear. And what is needed is courage. And Brene Brown talks about, you know, you can't have courage without vulnerability. Hmm. And so with diversity inclusion, the number one thing that I say, and I have this in my contract, these are the 10 reasons why my work will fail in your organization or why my training program will fail in your organization. One of the principles are, is if your leaders lack courage and bravery and, um, are afraid of being vulnerable in this work then this is this is going to fail so don't ask for your money back yep. <laughs> <laughs> um this is going to fail yep. you know because um you know we talk about you know innovation and you know we're being courageous and we're you know we're disrupting the industry and we're creating all this you know chaos and disruption well why are we not willing to do that for the sake of people's experiences mm. you know and um, so that they feel like they can survive in this world, let alone thrive, and rather than feeling like they're being suffocated. That's a uh, that's amazing insight, Renita. I mean, I'm learning everything. I'm, I'm learning so much just by talking to you today. <laughs> um, you know, I'm learning that diversity and inclusion is there's no end goal because the goal is always evolving, and it's yeah. all about how do you adapt to the changing environment yeah. and to be welcoming to that changing environment in the company and. Um, this is great, and uh, I'm conscious of time because I know you're extremely busy. So just a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, 
you were recently awarded the Order of Australia, yeah. which is a, a huge honor. So firstly, congratulations. Aww, thank you. Secondly, could you tell us more about that experience um, leading up to that award? Yeah, well, I know I was nominated three times. Yep. Um, it's anonymous, so they don't tell you who nominates you. Um, but I guess the government got the point. Yep. <laughs> so they were like, just give this damn woman her, her medal. Yep. Um, actually, when they called me and I had a, because they call you and uh, I had a missed call from government house and that's what the voice you know, okay. the text said. Missed call from government house. And I thought, holy crap, am I in trouble? <laughs> did, I, did I say something that now the government's <laughs> like, we need to shut her down. Yep. We need to get the federal police onto her because she's like breaking society, you know, like her DNI work is just out of control. And um, I was going to delete that text message, actually. Wow. Okay. And um, and then I decided, oh, I just call just them. Pick it up. I should practice yeah. what I preach, right? So I should call them and be courageous. And um, yeah, then I found out that I was nominated. Um, you then get to accept that award. And I did toss and turn about that, about whether I wanted to accept that. You know, obviously, you know, um, you know, it's government and there's, you know, it would be released on Australia Day and, mm. you know, which is, you know, um, you know, has a lot of history behind that. And there was a bit of tension there around, you know, um, do I accept this work? Does this award actually go against the beliefs of my work and my support for First Nations people? And then I thought about it, I thought, well, obviously women of color have nominated me, mm. you know, for this award. Um, from what I understand, the process is quite long. It's a two-year process. Wow. And um, it's, it's, they have a booklet on it. Is is a very complicated process, yeah. and um, yeah, and then I thought I'd I'd accept the award. I went to the award ceremony. Baker Boy was there. I was oh. a bit too shy to go up to him though. <laughs> um, and his, I, I believe his partner. She had amazing dress. Kept looking at her dressing. Oh my goodness, beautiful. <laughs> um, and you know, um, it was the ceremony to be accepted. I mean, government house staff are very very hospitable, very kind. You know. I'm exceptional at what they do and the building is amazing but it did feel surreal for me to go in my cheetah print you know top and my um shiny pants and my curly big hair and you know because it, when you look out to see which is the audience um clearly people don't look like me mm. so um misfit yes yeah. i would say like less than one percent from what i could physically identify were um were people of color and majority of which were were families of people that were nominated so i think the government is um because even the uh nominations for the queen's birthday were announced so um i am um feeling and sensing that the government is being more conscious like the committees and stuff mm -hmm. in, in in that process of you know acknowledging their biases and, and nominating and giving um awards to people that have you know various multiple identities and things like that so um so yes yeah, so i feel like that's changing um the award is sitting in a box at home. <laughs> um i think it was just more for my family yep. yeah you know i don't know if you experienced the same thing but my family like she did nothing of what we expected we have absolutely <laughs> no idea what she's doing yeah but the fact the government gave her award tells us she's not wasting her life yeah it's a good sign yeah <laughs> All that hard work as an ethnic immigrant has been worth it. <laughs> I'm sure your family would have been very proud of you. Oh, yeah. My mother was yeah. a bloody paparazzi that oh, day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And final question before we wrap up the podcast. Yeah. What are your plans for the future? Where do you go from here? 
Um, so I think this kind of comes back to like my mm. innovation entrepreneurship roots. I find it very difficult, right? Because of that training and that mindset to mm. plan for the future. Um, and then the other part is my spiritual side. So um, I again, find it difficult to plan because I don't know what's in store. And if I plan over plan, then I don't allow space for magic, mm. you know, magic to come through. So I just plan in terms of quarters. I have a kind of rough oh. pinpoint. Okay. Um, I have a whole process around it, which I probably need to write a book too around because every time I run Absolutely. people through, they're just like, oh, and take down notes. But what, what I essentially have and what I do in my coaching is I have a, what I call a roadmap. Yeah. So we plan out your goal for um, a year from now. Uh, and so that's your goal for your business. But then, you know, what's the goal for you to allow you to fully show up in your business, mm. to do your best work, to be a high performing individual? And then what's your goal for your environment to support you in order? So it's kind of like a like a circle that's kind of scaffolding out. Mm. Um, so there's your environment, there's your business, and then there's you. So I'm pretty clear on the next three months only, um, or probably like even the next month or in the next week. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, like with my business, it's just around, you know, adding value in terms of what's valuable to community, community being all around me yep. and um, you know speaking up for people that are unable to speak up for themselves and and in terms of my um, environment it's you know allowing space to be creative um, in multiple different ways and um, and to meet you know extraordinary individuals that are that are doing you know incredible things in the world before I forget if someone want if someone listening to the podcast right now wanted to learn more about what you do or get your help in you know helping drive that cultural change within their organization. How do they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can just uh, drop me an email, hello at winitha, W-I-N-I-T-H-A.com. Um, and just head to my website, which is winitha.com. Amazing. Yeah. Winitha, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've learned a tremendous amount just by <laughs> speaking to you in, you know, in an hour. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I hope you benefited from the podcast as much as I did. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to us on our socials to stay up to date with our latest releases. Thanks and see you again soon.